Amen. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, hey, Matt, I might be a little hot on this mic. You might want to pull me down just a hair, bud. I feel like my voice is deeper, though. If you can keep that in the mix, that would be pretty cool. Um, hey, before I jump into the Word, typically we do our announcements before the call to worship, but there's a couple announcements that I think are pretty high-value ones and wanted to capture as many people as I could, especially if you're watching online. And one is just all the confusion over the masks and the vaccines, especially in settings that could look like this. I say confusion because there's a lot of different things going on. Um, municipalities are not all doing the same thing. Um, I read this morning that here in Knox County, I don't think we know exactly who's in charge. I think the, 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 the county guy thinks he's in charge and then the health department thinks they're in charge. I don't even, I don't, I don't really know who's in charge. I don't think the people in charge know exactly who's in charge on something like this. And then we've got the national voice, the, govern, the government and how they're speaking into it. And then, well, this test is a good test and this study is a bad study. And it's, it's all very confusing, right? And so I don't want to add to the confusion. Um, but one thing that has been probably the biggest change in the last week, unless you've not been watching the news, and I don't blame you if you haven't, right? It's been a lot. And if you're tired of hearing about this, I am tired of talking about it. I promise you that. But there has been a recommendation that all people, whether vaccinated or unvaccinated, would wear masks in all indoor settings. That is a recommendation, it is not a mandate, okay? So one thing just to be clear, as a church, we have not nor likely will outpace the governance by requiring something that's only been recommended. It's just been recommended, it's not been required. In the past, it has been required for settings like this, right? And we were very quick to step in line and wear masks um, right now, it is just recommended, not required. Now, what we're doing as a church, leadership, we're watching and we're evaluating all the information that's coming out, okay? And we're filtering through that with a mind towards what's most helpful for you and what's most helpful for the city. So with all the confusion going on, we're going to make sure you don't have to guess what we're doing here from week to week. If we make any change in the status quo, we will be very clear, and then we'll be very clear that we've been very clear. We'll send an email, we'll shoot a video, do a little dance, we'll have a puppet show, whatever it takes to communicate to you and the style you like to receive communication, exactly what you can expect coming into here. Um, but maybe just a couple, that, that's just a, a quick update, maybe a quick warning, right, when it comes to this, because we knew this months ago, I knew it a year ago, easy to shut something down like society, a little bit harder to start it back up, right? We talked about this months ago. We're going to have to revisit it again. Reentry is a little bit like a rocket that's reentering the atmosphere. Lots of friction, lots of heat, and now here, here we have it, right? So we have a lot of different people in this room. If we were to have a flow chart, it would look boringly complex. We have people that are not vaccinated, statistically half of you, okay? Statistically half of Legacy Church, and many of us not here today, and I'll go over that, why, but half of us are not vaccinated. And out of the ones who are vaccinated, statistically, 25% of you did not want to get vaccinated, right? So it's a hodgepodge of people who are not vaccinated. We have people that had COVID already and then got vaccinated. We have people that have gotten vaccinated and then it gotten COVID right after that. We have people that have had vaccinations and no problem vaccinations with slight complications from time to time, nothing serious, but they're there. It's a lot of different things going on. There's a lot of diversity, right? 
So with that being said, it's important for you to know, because I think the biggest division is between those who have been vaccinated and those who have not. And they're starting to have a growing contentiousness between those who have been vaccinated against those who are unvaccinated, right? You need to know, just as everyone who has been vaccinated has done so for different reasons, it's fair to assume that people who are choosing not to be vaccinated also have a variety of different reasons to do it. It's not because they all love Donald Trump, okay? And it's not because they hate you, and it's not because they're being self-centered. There's a variety of different people. There's a variety of different reasons. People are getting vaccinated and are not getting vaccinated. I just, listen, this is obvious, okay? All of this is obvious. I feel like it's important for us to remember it as we move forward because I do think it's going to get a little bit rockier before it gets any easier. Um, so when it comes to recommendations and how we as a church handle recommendations from the government, and not just the government, but influential voices, okay, whether they are legislative voices or non-legislative voices, when it comes to what's recommended for people like us, we take those things um, and we, we put it next to the Bible. Some things we immediately have to say no. We understand that's recommended and that you would love for us to do that. We are, we are decidedly not going to do that. One would be for me to stand up and to support. It's recommended that I, as a community leader, would stand up and support the woman's right to abort her child. Not going to do it. It's heavily recommended that I do that up here right now. I'm not going to do it. It's heavily recommended that I would fold into line and preside over same-sex weddings. I'm also not going to do that. There might be a day where that's not a recommendation and it's a mandate, and then I'll just end up going to jail. But right now, it's recommended, and we're going to decide not to do that. When it comes to the recommendation of wearing masks, we'll recommend it. We recommend it, but we're not going to mandate it. We're not going to mandate it. We're not going to outpace the government on what we mandate, all right? We're going to do the best we can to be helpful to you and helpful to the city. So... This is what I can say for certain. If you want a mask and cannot afford one, take a handful of them. Don't just take one. Take a, probably could take a package if you really wanted them that bad. Take them on the way out. They're yours. You can have the masks, right? We are going to maintain our missional community groups. Um, now, listen, we have always in the past and will going forward defer to those who are hosting and leading the missional communities, right? They have differing comfort levels when it comes to COVID in general, and that was before the Delta variant. So there's going to be some variety in how comfortable people are being in someone's home and having someone else in their home. We're deferring that to the missional communities. We're not speaking authoritatively as a church on that. Um, also, if you have symptoms, I mean, I've heard of eight families just this morning who have symptoms or have kids who have, have RSV symptoms right now or cold symptoms. Listen, if you've got symptoms, stay home, right? I mean, I don't need to say that, right? Just like I don't need to say wash your hands, or put your seatbelt on, avoid gluten, you know. I don't have to say some of these things. They're pretty obvious, but I'm going to say it. As a church, we're not going to mandate distancing, which is why you didn't see the yellow tape up everywhere. But you are free to distance if you want. The place sits 600 people, right? I'm sure you could find a corner where you're going to be at least six feet from other people. We're not going to employ temperature checks at the front door, and we're not going to sing into masks. Now, if you want to do those things, that's fine. You won't find any judgment from anyone. Hopefully, you won't find any judgment from the person next to you. You won't find any judgment from me. Um, but this is just where we're at. When the, when the status quo changes, we will let you know. In fact, that we're going to have a pastor's meeting today. I'm sure we'll chatter a little bit about how to go forward. But we're going to do the best we can to be helpful for you and helpful for the city. That you can be sure of. So with that announcement done, 
The second one is, is we're about to have our fourth corporate day of fasting. Listen, we don't do these, day, these fasting days as a, as a church. We don't do them every week. We do one a month, right? The first Thursday of the month, you can count on it happening. Um, and this Thursday, we're going to have our fourth corporate day of fasting. And this one is going to have as an object, maybe something that we can all rally behind and agree on, is a facility, okay, a building, Right now, I had lunch with a, a good friend of mine, a pastor here in the city on Monday, and we were talking about facilities. His church has one. We do not. And he said, Luke, I'm curious, why is it that you want one? I heard you guys were healthy. I, I heard you guys were robust. And it doesn't seem like a facility is going to hurt or help you guys one way or the other. Uh, that was a good question. And it's good for me to think through those questions and answer those questions because we didn't start as a church that required a facility, Right? I've been in the ministry for 23 years. The last 16, I've never been in a church facility. I haven't had an office in 23 years, right? Never, that means never. I've never had an office as a pastor. So it's not like I feel like we have to have one to be credible, but I do think it's a new tool. It's a tool in our tool belt to be helpful for a community. I do think that. I think that a community takes a church a little bit more serious when you have shown and dropped anchor and said, we are here for you and we're not going anywhere. I think that's helpful to become an embassy of sorts for people. I think it would have been fun and cool to have a building in this neighborhood during COVID. I know a lot of churches were just locking the doors. I think we could have been creative and done some really cool stuff with the building during that time. To be honest, very honest between you and me, financially, long term, it's just easier and it's cheaper to have a building. Secondly, we plant churches faster. It is an amplifier when it comes to church planting. And there's about 10 reasons behind that. These are things that are serious for us. Planting churches is a high value for us. Reaching the community is a high value. So we want a facility, right? Now, it's also important for you to know that we're always evaluating facilities, things pop from time to time. And what we do is the quick and dirty math on it. Can we even afford something like that? And if we can't afford it and it looks like it might fit our values in the community that looks like it makes sense, then we'll start looping the leadership team in. And then if we can get some congruence of thought, we'll loop in some extra people in that. And then if it looks like it could be a go and the math works, then we're going to bring it to the partnership. We're going to bring it to the partners of the church and have you vote on it. Okay, this is an important point right here. This is not the kind of church that votes on anything. We're not a congregational church. Typically, when it comes to the color of the pews and which missionary is going to another country, it's something that as pastors we decide on as a plurality. But occasionally, as pastors, we will decide to place a vote in your lap because we're asking you to buy into it. If we're going to ask for you to give sacrificially your time, talent, and treasure to something, then we're going to want you to vote on something that pivotal, right? Just so you know, as you fast for it this Thursday, kind of what the protocol looks like as we're evaluating and an analyzing different properties. There's a couple we're looking at right now. It might sound exciting. There's always a couple we're kind of looking at here and there. But just be fasting. So instead of spending the 12 bucks or whatever Chipotle is charging now, on lunch on Thursday, spend that time thinking, praying, and meditating and asking and petitioning the Lord to help us, give us clarity as a leadership team on what a facility could look like going forward. Those are my announcements. That was a lot. Are you ready to go into Exodus? Y'all are like, I don't know. Is it going to take longer than that? Depends. Yeah, let's look at Exodus. Go ahead and open up your Bibles if you brought one to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, 
This passage is interesting. I love this passage. And listen, if you have eyes to see it, you'll see Christ differently than you did when you walk in here, okay? But one thing I can say about this passage is there is no sense of doing anything alone, right? No solo endeavors happening in this passage. None. And that's tough for me. I'm a little bit more Ron Swanson than Leslie Nope when it comes to working and building with other people, to be honest with you. I am an introvert, but I'm also a little selfish like that. When I was in college, it was a living hell to put me in a study group with others. I hated study group. And some of you, you loved it, right? Some of you are like, yes, study group. Not me, man. I thought, why? I could get so much more done on my own. If you just leave me alone, I could study faster, study more. I could get a better grade. It's not that I don't like people. It's just that I don't like depending on people, right? It's not that I don't love being with people. I don't love trusting and in, 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 in kind of waiting on other people. Why, why do things shoulder to shoulder when it's just easy for us to go it alone? And it is. But I have, I'm confronted, not just by our passage today, but even by the Lord in Genesis when he says, it's not good that man is alone, right? And then he brings a helpmate and his wife. Now, my self-sufficiency is greatly challenged by that because I feel like I'm better alone. I just do. My nature does not want to share. And this isn't just for introverts. Extroverts can be just as self-centered when it comes to sharing life, right? So let's look at what the word says. This is Exodus 17. We're going to jump down to verse 8. Verse 8. Remember, this is a new nation. It's barely finding its footing, and they're going to bump into a pretty serious challenge. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, that's Joshua's first time to make entrance in our story, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Okay. They were being attacked when they were incredibly vulnerable. They're a mobile people at this point, right? So imagine they're packing up everything they own. They move it into wherever they stop that day. They unpack it and then just hit repeat. Every single day they're mobile. Well, you're vulnerable when you're carrying everything you own, right? Also, they don't have a military yet. No soldiers. He says, go and find some men. I don't even know what that looked like, like between 12 and 72 or something. I mean, he, he had to go and find men, but they weren't good at anything besides making bricks. That's all they've ever known. No military leaders, no West Point craking out something, no walls. I mean, a city was assessed as a strong city based on the size, the height, the width of the walls. They had none. They're just wandering around with all of their stuff, and they're going against Amalek. Now, Amalek is from the bloodline of Esau, I think the grandson, if I'm not mistaken. 
but this is a band of pirates. It's a tribal clan. They are well known for speedy attacks. If you do any kind of historical study on them, they're really good at hitting you where it hurts when you're not expecting it, especially with women and children. That's what they're known for. So their GDP was made up of piracy, whatever they could steal. That's what made them wealthy. It's not really who you want to bump into when you're trying to figure out things like food and water and who exactly is in charge and why. So they select Joshua, who 40 years after this will end up leading in Moses' place. But Joshua is going to find men to fight, and this is the strategy in case you did not pick it up. Moses is telling Joshua, listen, this is how it's going to go down. You take your hodgepodge band of whoever, and you go and fight these trained killers, and I'm going to be up on the hill with my arms up in the air. Are we good? You got that? Are we straight? Oh, and Aaron and her, they're going to be up there with me, right? Listen, that's crazy. That sounds ridiculous. It does. Just call it what it is. If you were Joshua, what would you do in that moment? You love Moses. You saw what God could do. I would, be, I would struggle. I'd be like, listen. I love you and I trust you-ish, but run this by me one more time and how that's helpful for me. Because these guys aren't fighters and those guys are, and you're way up on a hill. But Aaron and her, while they were up on a hill, were innovative enough to find a rock for Moses to sit on so they could easily hold his arms up. Now this is an interesting part of the passage, right? Because he's holding the staff of God. Now that staff of God is incredibly symbolic. If you remember, God gave it to him. It was a gift. God gave him this staff back at the burning bush. This is the same stick that he would throw down, and it turned into a snake that would consume other snakes. It was kind of a miracle stick, like a magical stick of some kind that God had his power imbued in, and it was powerful before all the people that would see it. He would use the same one to puncture the Red Sea, and the thing parts. It's a powerful staff, and as he holds it up, it's symbolic of the present power of God. That's what you need to see in this. So when the staff is up and God's power is present, Joshua's soldiers are winning and Israel's prevailing. When the presence of God is symbolically removed and the arms fall, then they start to see defeat. And so the result is what you read. Israel wins by the power of God, not by their military skill. Yet they did fight. They did fight. This is important. The fight was real. I'm sure they were exhausted afterward because it was a real fight with real swords and real arrows and blood and not everybody made it out of there alive. Families were destroyed by some of the casualties of the war. There was probably people that lost an arm or a toe or something. It was a real fight and they won but God won and both are true and both are true at the same time and we're going to go into that what it means for you on Tuesday here in just a moment. But before we do, I want to jump into verse um, 1 of 18. So go down to chapter 18 and look at verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, 
I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you and your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare. And he went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. In that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Okay, just a quick pause here. This is very, this is a cool moment. It doesn't really have anything to do with our passage today or at least the main idea of the big passage. But Jethro becomes a believer. Either in this moment or directly before this moment, no one's entirely sure, and I'm not sure it really matters when, but by observing God's work in Moses and by looking at God's work in Israel, he comes to this concluding statement that we just read that says, now I see and now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. That sounds familiar. Job would say something similar. We say, I used to hear, but now I see. And then a man was healed by Christ who said, I used to be blind, but now I can see. There was this pivotal realization where God is rescuing somebody, and we're watching it happen right here in Jethro. Listen, this, let me just give you a quick encouragement for those of you with unbelieving parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts or any kind of extended family. I know how heavy it can be to love a family that does not love Jesus. It could be brutal. I want you to take heart here that Jethro was a priest of another religion in another land. He was a priest. There weren't any priests yet. He was priest in a land of Midian that wasn't even friendly with Israel. He didn't grow up in the Bible Belt. You know, recent figures show that, and how you, you, could, you could argue this if you want. I would never argue with you for arguing about it. But the thing is, is they're saying now that it's probably between 93 and 97% of people who become Christians do so before the age of 30. We'll just chop it in half and say 30, right? It drops off a cliff after 30. We're only 2% of people become Christians after the age of 2. That sounds kind of scary. Two. Some say four. I'd say it's still very low. That's where this guy was at. A priest of another religion in another land who's obviously well past the date where people radically have their heart changed. Don't think for one moment your family isn't taking note of God's formative life in your, or is God's form of your life. Don't think he doesn't see. Don't think she doesn't see. Don't think your family doesn't witness and observe your consistency, your joy, your sacrifice, the hard work, the growth, the change. Don't think for one moment they can't see. They see. They see. I know you're not Moses with a magical stick, parting seas with millions of people behind you, but then again, that's not what changes the human heart. Things like that. You could be an uneventful person with an uneventful life, and the same spirit that hovered above the chaotic waters in Genesis, the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the tomb, the same spirit of God that rescued you from death will actually seize upon your uneventful words and seize their unbelieving hearts and give them the gift of faith where they can see and hear that message and trust in it and become a Christian. That happens. 
my mother's mom, my grandmother, who was a high officer in the Navy and a hard woman, a hard mouth, a hard life. She taught me a lot. She, she partly raised me for a small chunk of my life. <laughs> she was a rough woman. That's how I learned baseball, watching her cuss at the screen when the Royals acted like the Royals, you know. And so I learned a lot from her. But one thing I knew is that she did not love Jesus. But when she turned 70, God, God took her. God grabbed her heart, ruined her for anything else. And then she became the sweet, hospitable, gentle poet, writing poetry to Jesus. And then she died a couple years later. She was well past this date. Don't think for one moment that they don't see and God cannot. Don't think it. It's true. Let Jethro be just an example right here. All right, I'm sorry. I jumped off track. Look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what are you doing or what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men. From all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people of chiefs, thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people will go to their place in peace. And then Moses listened to him. Listen, I love this passage. It's typically taught, typically, to leaders who stink at delegation. That's when you're going to hear it the most, right? Which is a good application for sure. But also something you're seeing is a really cool picture of Jethro investing into Moses with a hard word. Constructive criticism. And you're also seeing a picture of Moses receiving constructive criticism, receiving this investment. Jethro comes along and says, yo, this is a horrible idea. This whole thing you're doing is a really bad idea. It's too much work for you to do alone. You're going to burn out. It's not going to be helpful to anyone. So get some help. Get the right guys. Scale this operation. You do the things that only you can do well, and you let other people share the burden, share the ministry, walk alongside, shoulder to shoulder with you to do the rest. Because Moses was the front desk and the DMV and the county clerk and the police and the pastor, and it's just not working. It's not working. He was about to burn out and use that magical staff to start beating people with. He was at the very end, and Jethro saw it. So what he's doing is he's prescribing leadership self-care right now, and not just for Moses' sake, but for everybody else's sake too. Here's the big question, and we're going to revisit it in a moment. But do you have a Jethro? And are you? Hey, Jethro. 
Think about it. Do you have somebody investing in you to this level? And are you investing in someone else to this level? And why not? Right? We're going to come back to that in a moment. The main idea that we capture in the grander passage, Israel is showing us two things that they're doing shoulder to shoulder while God supplies. Two things, right? Because remember, he's drawing them out and drawing them in. He's drawing them out of Egypt, and he's drawing them unto himself, but that also means he's going to tighten the proximity. They're not just making bricks as neighbors anymore. He's tying them into each other as a community. Now they're shedding blood together with swords. Now they're ministering next to each other. Those are the two things. They're sharing a fight as God fights for them, and they're sharing a ministry as God ministers through them. And this is just reality to the Christian today in the wilderness. Wilderness living. It's just reality. I mean, before Jesus, I would exhaust myself while trusting in myself, and I would grow weary, right? As a Christian, I'll still exhaust myself to grow and fight, but I do so while trusting God. And those are two very different things. Because listen, as Christians, we live active lives. We grow, we leave sin in the dust, we make disciples, we extend the gospel, we look for city change, we are active, and God is active at the same exact time. There's a, there's a great difference between being exhausted in the work of God and being weary of the, of the work of God. Being exhausted and being weary are not the same thing. We grow weary when we trust in ourselves. We're simply exhausted when we work really hard to grow while trusting in God, right? Which is why you've been tired and rested at the same time before. Have you ever come out of a moment where you are counseling or you are being a Jethro and investing in somebody else and it was exhausting and yet you're rested at the same time? Have you ever fought sin so hard that it is just tiring and yet you're rested at the same time that God is fighting for you? There is a difference. There's a difference. Weariness just finds us when we fail to trust God with the outcome. That's when weariness comes. And I get it, many of us are weary today because you've been fighting Alone, all alone. And what Jethro would say if he was here is this is not good. This is not good, what you're doing. Listen, I share the same temptation you do, and that's the one of self-trust. We're tempted to trust in ourselves. Tempted to believe that we are self-sufficient in all matters. If you're an extrovert, this is true. An introvert, this is true. Whatever your Enneagram is, this is true. It's a universal temptation. Now, here's the thing. We don't really have a physical Amalek in front of us anymore. There's no pirates around every corner that we really have to like, carry a sword around anymore. But then again, we're told that's not even where our, the chief battle lines fall anyway. That's not where our fight is. Paul says to the Ephesian church, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, you have temptations. This is what your wilderness looks like, just like mine. You have temptations, and they get out of control, right? We have an enemy. He hates us. He prowls, looking like Amalek to blitz you when you're not expecting it and most vulnerable. He's looking to steal, kill, and destroy. That is true. And then we just have broken, broken creation to contend with, broken people living life with other broken people in a broken place doing broken things to each other. All of that mixed in. This is what makes the wilderness wild. Otherwise, it's just paradise. 
But remember, from last week, we talked about God did not rescue them straight from slavery into paradise, but he pushes them through the wilderness. Why? Trust. Building faith. Paradise is when all of those things change, when we have no more temptations and creation is not broken any longer and our enemy is put down. For now, we just exhaust ourselves in the wilderness while God fights for us, while he labors for us. We might be tired, we don't have to be weary. I don't say this stuff lightly. I, some of us are really fighting right now, really fighting, heavy fighting, depression, Depression's so bad you don't even know what to do. Don't even know who to talk to. You've tried different medications. Some work, some don't. Some days are better than others. There's really no predicting it. It's just that some days you just don't know why. Anxiety for others, so paralyzing. You lose sleep. You lose your hair. You lose your relationships. You, you can't even see straight. Can't enjoy, can't smile, can't laugh. Addictions. Some of us have picked up something that is just so alluring we cannot put it down. It's true. Can you recognize that you are fighting and God is fighting for you? And God is fighting for you. Because some of you, I think you just feel alone. You're fighting, but you're alone. No one's on the hill. No one's arms are raised. It's important for you to know that you're not alone. Right? Why? Because if you're fighting and you don't think God is fighting with you, for you, ahead of you, then you can never rest. You can never rest. You always have to walk with shame because you're not better. You ought to be better. You should be better. You should act better, sound better, read better. You ought to, should be. You're always going to feel shame. Can't rest. Don't give yourself any grace. Your affections for the Lord don't grow. These are the things we face. I want to just quickly put an image in your mind. I want you to think From the perspective of a soldier on the field, looking up and seeing Moses on a hill, arms outstretched while he mediates and intercedes for the people on the field, and he's got the staff of God representing the power of God in his hand. There's Moses, right? Arms up. Amalek's not winning. Do you realize that's just a picture? That's just a moment. It's a snapshot. It's meant to avert your gaze to a millennia later, another hill where Christ himself is up on a hill with his arms outstretched, not holding the power of God, but being the power of God as he mediates and intercedes for a people. Jesus is the better Moses. He's also the better Joshua who leads his people into battle in front, in front against an enemy that is clearly outmatching them, clearly more dangerous. This is what we're supposed to see in this. It's the power of God, both shown in Moses and in Joshua that leads us to see that God is fighting for us in battles we otherwise would never win. It's God fighting. You're not alone. God is fighting with you, for you, and ahead of you because you're clearly outmatched. I mean, it's not that you can't just beat the cosmic powers. You can't even beat your own flesh, right? You can't even follow your own rules. You are clearly outmatched. But Jesus is a better Moses. He's a better Joshua, right? It's God who fights for us. This is what this means, by the way, just so you know as you grow. When you beat a sin, when you overcome, or what the Puritans would say, mortify a sin, when you put a sin down, that's a battle you win, right? It's actually the Lord's battle as well. He wins that. 
Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a quirky verse, interesting verse. Because, yeah, you stop looking at trash online, and sure, you stop drinking one too many, or you stop slandering, or you stop stealing, or doing whatever it is that's been very difficult for you. Of course you stopped. And that's a high-five moment. It really is. But God did this in you. Even your desire to do it was given you by God. You wouldn't even want to change if it wasn't God giving that to you. You've all had moments where you said, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm changing. I'm going to put that down and I'm going to pick this up. I'm going to change. I want my affections for the Lord to grow. I want my affections for this sin to decrease. I want to grow. Did you know that even the desire, that eruption of passion was not natural to you but a gift to you? That is God fighting for you. You've got to recognize these things or else you never end up in worship in those moments. You end up self-congratulating yourself because you yet checked another box so you don't have to be as shameful before the Lord anymore. Right? See, there is a passive angle to your growth, and yet you exhaust yourself to grow. And both are true. And both are true. Right? That's why... One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I've said it up here I don't know how many times, 2 Samuel 10, 12, where Joab from a different battlefield, it's interesting to me how important, poignant things are said in battlefield moments, but Joab, his arrows are flying and swords are coming out, he looks and he says, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. I love it. Execute brave courage. And trust that God is wise and smart and good to us and rest in the fact. There's a picture of exhaustion and a picture of rest all in a battle call. Because growth in the wilderness is exhausting, but it does not have to be wearying. It does not. Your soul can rest knowing that God is reshaping you day by day. I don't think all of us trust this. I don't think all of us really envision God up on a hill fighting for us, ahead of us with us in mind, right? So every day you wake up and your feet hit the ground, Amalek is there. Scary. Outmatching you. And this is why your wilderness is much more wild than it needs to be. God is invested in your growth and your health more than you are. You need to know that. He is ahead of you. You are not alone and you are also free to fight to the glory of God. Okay? We have the Holy Spirit in us. That's an important part of the gospel. An important part of the gospel, not a footnote, is that we have the Holy Spirit in us leading us to grow in the face of Amalek. And how? We're seeing this passage shoulder to shoulder with others. Shoulder to shoulder, right? This is why he says in Ezekiel 36, and I will put my spirit within you. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. Probably don't have to say that, but I will, right? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes cause you to do this and be careful to obey my rules. It's not possible unless you have the Holy Spirit. It's not possible. And this is why Paul says to the Galatian church, but I say walk by the Spirit. Which Spirit? The one that God has given us, right? Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. You cannot change without God's Spirit in you. Cannot, literally, impossible to do that, right? Which is why if you do not love Jesus and you're here or you're watching and you would call yourself a skeptic or a searcher but an unbeliever for sure, this is why you've not been able to change. I mean, sure, you could drop a bad habit or two or learn Spanish, right? 
But that's not the change your soul craves. <laughs> that's not the stuff you, that haunts you at night. That's not how you drop the sins that kind of follow you through life that you'd be ashamed if anyone even knew about. That's the change you're after. And those you're powerless to defeat without God. Because listen, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And we cannot change, literally change, without God's spirit revolutionizing our soul. It's impossible. But listen, this is good news. Here's the good news in this passage. I mean, there's lots of good news, obviously. But the big picture I want you to see is Jesus does not lower his arms. That's the point of the gospel, right? Does not lower his arms. He doesn't have a couple homies up there holding his arms while he's sitting on a rock. Oh, it's so hard. It's a long day. Someone hold my arms. That's not what's happening up there. You know what kept Jesus' arms up on the cross? His love for the Father. His desire and hunger for the gospel. This right here. This is what kept Hebrews 7 says he lives to intercede. He lives for that moment. Lives to intercede. He exists to mediate. Right now. Right now as I'm preaching to you in Knoxville, Tennessee on August 1st, 2021. Right now today, Jesus is interceding. Advocating at the right hand of the Father. Friends, listen. You can grow. <laughs> you can grow. You can put the sins down. Exhaust yourself against sin and rejoice that the battle's already won. And there's no need to grow weary. Tired? Maybe. Right? Because energy is spent. Weary? No. Because the battle is won. That's a picture that we're getting in this passage. And listen, not as big of a point, but a sub-point before we drop out of this moment. We not only share wilderness growth with God, we share ministry with each other. It's important that I say this before we jump out. Right? That we invest in each other. COVID, again, so sick and tired of talking about COVID, especially today. COVID has, among many things, disassembled relationships. Agreed, right? I've been making fun of it for three weeks. This new phrase, friendship recession or friend recession. <laughs> I can't even say it now without chuckling. It sounds so stupid, but the reality is real, right? What happened was is our tight proximities were ripped apart whenever the pandemic and the quarantine came. And it never really got back together for most people. That proximity never really came back like it used to be, right? I don't really think COVID detached friendship as much as maybe exposed just how thin some of those relationships were, probably a different sermon. But now, a lot of us don't have a Jethro anymore or an Aaron or a Her or a Joshua. They're gone. You had them. Now you don't. Now you're just trying to grow and find purpose, but you're doing it alone. As a church, capital C, we have become less invested in each other. Right? Less invested and more solo as a general rule. I'm going to ask you, do you feel relationally dry? I mean, don't raise your hand. Don't do that to yourself. But do you? Do you feel uninvested in? Unknown? Unheard? Feel solo? Maybe a different question. Do you feel comfortable that way? Do you like it that way? Let me just tell you, can we agree to stop blaming the virus for this? Can we just quit? Stop blaming the virus. Pandemics, wars, and plagues over the past have done nothing but ground and grow the church. COVID didn't destroy the church. I know churches are shutting down. COVID didn't destroy the church, friends. It did not. If the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, I mean, COVID, come on. But when the church equals a Sunday location that we go to, Sunday location, it's something less than a people of shared ministry. And let me tell you, if that's what church is to you, the wild wilderness is going to eat you alive. You will not grow.
you'll hit a ceiling. You won't grow. With the addition of Juneteenth, we now have 11 three-day weekends in the year. 11. That's a lot. Probably more than you thought, right? 11 three-day weekends that, that will take a moment like this and throw it up for grabs. Add six weeks maybe where you wake up and you feel sick or just not having it that day. If you got kids, you can add another six, right? Because even if you're feeling great, the kids might not be feeling great. Maybe add in another few for when relatives come into town and they're not into the church thing, or maybe you go out of town. You add it all up, you're really looking at about half of the year where the church is firmly up for grabs. And I'm just talking about Sunday morning, and I'm talking about before COVID. <laughs> it's far worse now. If the totality of what you call sharing life and investing in others is something like this, let me just be frank for a moment. You need to know Jesus did not die to create that little Sunday morning expression, right? He did not. Paul likens the church to a building or a human body where we greatly share ministry, greatly share responsibility for each other, where we are mutually investing in each other. Everything fits, everything contributes, ministry is shared. David Gunderson says it this way, we're a body, not a prosthetic warehouse. And I think what COVID did is it started chopping us up. He says, we're a pack, not a scattering of lone wolves, a temple, not a dispersion of loose stones. Again, original question, who are you investing in? Who? Who's investing in you? I mean, who are you investing in and do they even know it? I mean, are they aware of it, right? Who are you sharing ministry with? Who are you sharing a burden with, to use Jethro's words. Who is this? Where do you fit into the scaled effort of leading tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands when we're just building a people that will build other healthy disciples? Listen, I'm not talking about volunteering right now. I'm not even talking about presence in a Sunday morning service. I'm talking about investment. I'm talking about investment. Investing in others. Because this passage challenges our sense of being self-sufficient if you have eyes to see it. That's what it's saying. So there's a lot of room for us to repent in a sermon like this, right? A lot of room for us. I mean, when it comes to fighting and growing, right, shoulder to shoulder as God is before us and we grow and fight in the wilderness, is God on the hill for you or not? Is Jesus still on the cross interceding for you or not? Is he telling the truth or is he a liar? Because if he's a liar in your mind, and you're just living and being weary in the fight to grow as a Christian, and you don't trust that God is really who he says he is, do you understand there's room to repent there? Of saying, God, I'm sorry. I've, I've been living and trying to grow like you don't even exist. I've not given myself grace. I've not actually rested in my growth. But I just walk around with shame. Do you know that requires repentance? And then the other one is, are you invested and influential in the lives of others? Who is influencing you? And who are you influencing the church I came from in Tampa, that was one of the value statements is every Christian, or it's, I think, let me see if I can remember it. It's inconsistent for every Christian to not be a disciple and have a disciple, right? That was the phrase I think we said. Are you sharing ministry load? And just a little bit of a sales pitch, comm groups are great for this. Missional communities are actually built for it the tighter proximity, and those even break down into DNA groups. Moments where you can step into somebody and say, hey, can I help you with this? Or this is something I need you, you guys to know about me right now. Or can I get some feedback on this? 
right, where we're asking for that mutual investment and we're free to mutually invest in others. But friends, listen, this version of Christianity where we float into a service from time to time to find out how to be cleaner if Luke preaches a good sermon that day, frankly, that's boring. You've got to be bored if that's your goal. You've got to be bored, right? Jesus glued us together by his blood, not to sit together and listen to a bald guy preach, but to pour into each other, to grow together, to share a ministry together, to come alongside as we fight, as we grow, as we extend the gospel to the city, we share Let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to go ahead and get out of this. I've gone way long today. Too many soapboxes. So I want to take communion with you up here. So if you didn't grab one of these when you came in, again, this is another thing we do because of COVID. We don't have the common elements back there anymore. So we have these little sip. Mine's almost out of juice. I must have a leak or something. But if you didn't grab one of these when you came in, someone will bring in a platter full of these pretty soon. And if you're a, if you're a Christian, you, you don't even have to go to Legacy. But if you're a Christian, you want to be a part of this moment, if you raise your hand here in a moment, I'll tell you when. when you, if you raise your hand, they'll give you one of these. If you're not a Christian or you're, you're just kind of searching this thing out, trying to figure out who Jesus is, don't worry about this. I just want you to consider the length that God has gone through to keep his arms up and to fight an enemy that we're clearly unmatched, clearly outmatched by. All right, Jordan's got these. If anyone needs to raise their hand, there's a few over here, bud. So we're going to take this together as a church. And I just want you to know that what we're commemorating is the act that God did to free you and me from a worse Amalek. His body was crushed, his blood was spilt. And as we grow together, even today, even in this moment, as we take communion to celebrate Jesus, we're celebrating a Jesus who is in the act of interceding for us. <laughs> That's crazy when you think about it. I mean, it's not, it's not every day that you know exactly what somebody's doing, Right? when they're not in the room with you, but we know that Christ is interceding and advocating for you and for me, not because God's just looking to stomp us and as soon as Jesus shuts his mouth, God's going to pull it off, but it's Jesus with a smile interceding for a people and God with a smile is happy to hear it, happy to hear it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment where we get to take communion, looking back upon a passionate better moment, a better battle up on a cross on a hill with a better Moses and a better Joshua leading us into battle and defeating on our behalf at the same time. And Lord, we know that we're also looking forward, looking forward to a time where we will sit at the table of celebration. Jesus won't have to mediate for us anymore. He won't be interceding for us anymore, but we will be shoulder to shoulder with each other and with Christ, and there will be no more Amalek, and the wilderness will no longer be wild. Jesus will no longer have to advocate for us. But Lord, we know that there will be celebration. Family will be together. Lord, we know that we'll be in paradise. No more slavery and no more wilderness. There'll be no more sadness, no more boredom, no more anxiety or depression, no more shame, no more addiction, no more loneliness. Just celebration, just joy, tears of joy, songs of joy, memories full of joy. Oh, we're very thankful for that. We're very thankful for that. So, Lord, we take this bread in remembrance of what you've done, how you cracked yourself on the cross to beat 
a worse enemy than Amalek. And so we do so in worship and remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread. And Lord, we thank you for this juice, which is symbolic and representative of the blood, the royal blood that came out of royal veins to cover the sin that we were glad to carry, glad to live in our sin, glad to hide in the dark. And then you came and you rescued us against an enemy that clearly outmatched us, freeing us from the slavery in one day, even the wilderness. So we take this juice in remembrance of you. And so I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to go ahead and give it to the worship team to lead us out and worship. Well, listen, I know I'm talking to a room full of people with different issues, coming in with different issues. I know some of you feel alone, and you're fighting for your life. And you just don't see Jesus on a hill with his arms outstretched as the power of God, as God's army defeats darkness. I know you just don't see that. Trust is hard for you, and you feel alone. We're going to pray for you. I know some of you feel alone and you need investment, right? You just don't feel invested in. And that's probably a different sermon. You've never really asked anybody to do that. You have not put yourself into positions where that would even happen. But you don't feel invested in and you feel alone. Some of you are alone and you feel like you need to invest, like something's missing, right? You've not poured into somebody else. So therefore, you're never really going to be totally satisfied in this world. You're not even walking in the fullness of the purpose of why God has you here, to disciple and to invest and to enjoy him in the process. So a lot of us feel alone in this. But the whole theme of this passage and the gospel is that we are not alone. Shoulder to shoulder, God before us. So Father, we thank you for being so good and we thank you for not leaving us alone. We deserve to be left alone and you just did not do that. So here we are, shoulder to shoulder, worshiping you. No longer on a hill, no longer bleeding, no longer arms outstretched, but we worship you, Father, who looks on us and adores and cares for us. Because there's intercession on our behalf. There's advocacy. So we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for being good and kind and sweet and generous and thoughtful. We thank you that we don't have to fear Amalek anymore. We thank you that we don't have to fear cosmic powers. We don't have to fear pirates just snatching us. We don't have to fear these things, Lord. You take care of us. You go before us. And so, Lord, we leave a lot at your feet and we repent for the things that you have put on our heart to repent of. And we ask for your Holy Spirit this morning to change our hearts. We ask for your Holy Spirit to help us grow. We ask for your Holy Spirit to lead us, Lord, as we move forward. You're so good to us and you're so kind. And so we worship you in this moment. In your name we pray. Amen.